My name is Davis Smith. I'm the CEO of Cotopaxi and an MBA graduate of the Wharton School. The Latter-day Saint MBA Society was founded by a group of MBA students and alumni who are members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints with the hope of bringing together a community of business people striving to bless the world. In this podcast, you'll hear interviews with Latter-day Saint thought leaders that we hope will inspire you both in your professional and spiritual life. For more information about the Latter-day Saint MBA Society, visit latterdaysaintmba.com. And now I'll pass it over to Kurt Frankham, who will host this week's interview. All right, welcome back to another episode of the Latter-day Saint MBA podcast. And today we finally get in Evan McMullen. How are you, Evan? Great, Kurt. Thanks for having me. Great to be with you. Yeah, for sure. And uh, you, you know, we, uh, you're a busy guy right now, obviously running for political office. Your schedule isn't as wide open as maybe some of our other guests, even though all of our guests are quite busy. But uh, I would imagine it's just a, a packed schedule day to day. You don't know what to expect. Yeah, well, it is, it is packed. Some days you don't know what to expect, but other days you know what to expect every 15 minutes. <laughs> Sometimes the schedule is, is that packed. So yes, yeah. but it's it's great. You know, it's it's packed with, with meeting with people and speaking with people and mostly here in Utah, but also all over the country. Uh, you know, I'm running for Senate. I'm running to replace uh, Senator Mike Lee. And uh, the, 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 uh, the stakes are very high for the state and for the country. And so it's a, it's a wonderful opportunity to hear from a lot of people about their concerns and how they think we can get our country on track. And, and so that's what my day is full of doing every single day. And it's, it's a real, it, it really is a, um, it, you know, it, it, it's, it, it's a wonderful opportunity, a wonderful blessing to be able to, to speak to so many people every day. So I'm, I'm not complaining, but yes, the schedule is very busy. Yeah. Now, many people know that this isn't your first rodeo. In 2016, you, you ran an independent campaign for president. Do you feel like that uh, helped? I mean, there are less surprises this time around running for political office? Yeah. I mean, you'd think that there there would be, but my race in 2016, uh, you know, I ran very briefly as an independent uh, for president. And, uh, you know, that was a very brief, modest campaign. And it, you know, it, it generated a lot of national interest and uh, but but only for a brief period of time so still a very modest campaign this is more of a a traditional campaign in the sense that instead of running for for three months in you know uh very unique circumstances uh, i'm I'll, I'll have been in the race for a year by the time we hit election day and it's it's just more of a traditional campaign so in in many ways, uh, what I did in 2016 has you know, very little uh, parallels to what I'm doing now. Um, <laughs> but certainly, yeah. there were lessons in, in 2016 that that helped me. Now, I certainly know what the process is like, uh, and and have a better idea of of what needs to be done in order for us to prevail uh, than I would have had I not run in 2016. Yeah. Well, cool. Let's uh, rewind a little bit. And as we do in these interviews, we just sort of explore your life, your background, your professional career, um, maybe some of your public service and whatnot. And then uh, obviously the listening audiences, MBA students, uh, Latter-day Saint professionals, just people stri striving to find success in the, the professional world while, uh, you know, maintaining their faith and, and whatnot. And so maybe just give us a quick like timeline in, in, in five minutes or less as far as starting in high school and your professional career uh, up until this point. 
different jobs you've had and, and schools you've been to? Yeah, absolutely. So I, uh, you know, in, in high school, uh, I was, uh, you know, actually, even be, how about I start even before high school? In, in junior high, I wanted to be a filmmaker. My friends and I, we would make <laughs> films on our camcorders. We would edit them on the v- VHR, VHS player. And, uh, and, you know, that went on for a couple of years. But eventually, my father brought home a video, a movie from Blockbuster, you recall, when we used to watch movies yeah. that way, called, uh, called Three Days of the Condor. And it was an old Robert Redford spy film. And, uh, and, and I saw it, I must've been 12 years old when I saw that movie, but it really captured my attention. And, uh, and, and I could think of nothing else for, for the years that followed other than to serve the country as a part of the central intelligence agency. And so when I was 15 years old, I reached out to the CIA. That's a long story. I've told it many times. I won't take our, our time with it today, but but reached out to them, uh, and then I would I would end up being in touch with them for years until you know I f- finished high school, and then I went on my mission for the church and and came back and got back in touch with them. And then when I was a sophomore at, at Brigham Young University, they extended an, an offer to to start in their student trainee program. So I would do a semester in Washington D.C. where I was working at CIA headquarters, and then I would come back to BYU. And I alternated like that until I graduated. Uh, once I graduated, uh, you know, soon uh, around that time, 9-11 happened. I had received an offer from the operations side of the CIA to go undercover and to deploy overseas as, a, as an undercover operative. And so uh, that's what I, I, I did. I took that, I, I, I transitioned to um, to the operations side of the Central Intelligence Agency, they didn't allow students on that side of the agency. So I really, I had to graduate before they would let me come over. Um, but I graduated, I went undercover, I went through two years of clandestine operations training. 9-11 happened at the beginning of that as I was graduating, and or right after I graduated. And I shipped off to, the, to South Asia and the Middle East and North Africa and spent several years there uh, doing mostly counterterrorism operations as an undercover CIA officer. And uh, it, all in, I, I spent about over 11 years in the agency and ultimately decided that you know I, I needed to move on for various reasons, even though I loved my time there. And you know, if I had an infinite life, you know, I, I would just I, I would have spent more time there. But it, I felt it was important to move on, so. I left and completed my service, went to, uh, attended Wharton to earn my MBA, and, uh, and then uh, had an opportunity to go work in the investment banking division of Goldman Sachs. So I did that for uh, you know, a, about a year and a half after business school and uh, thought I would then transition to a, a startup in, in Silicon Valley, but received an unexpected uh, request that I returned to Washington and be a national security advisor to uh, in the House of Representatives to the to the Foreign Affairs Committee. So I did that for a couple of years. Then House Republican leadership asked asked me to come up and be the chief policy director for for the House Republicans, and I agreed to do that. I did that for about a year and a half, and uh, and then <coughs> and then ultimately I. Uh, I left to uh, to enter the the presidential race in 2016 with about three months left when um, when it was clear that uh, no one else 
uh, others who I had, other members of Congress and, and the like, I had tried to recruit to do that. And ultimately they decided they wouldn't do it, but you know, they encouraged me to do it because they weren't doing it. And so I did it. And, uh, and then since then I've, I've spent my time, um, in politics and it, it, totally unexpected. It was, it was the last thing I, it was not part of my life plan to take this, this turn, but I've spent the last five years uh, building a cross-partisan coalition of Americans who are committed first and foremost to our foundational ideals and therefore to protecting our system of self-government. And, and what that means is that we stand up to, we've, we've stood up to extremist politicians and we've helped elect honorable leaders and, uh, and you know, built this movement across the, the country uh, to protect our democratic republic. And, and so that's what I've spent my time doing, of course, uh, then entered the race here, the U.S. Senate race in Utah in October, in early October. And, and obviously, that's what I'm, I'm still doing. Right. Yeah. Awesome. What would you say about your early uh, faith development? Was it always just sort of a, a staple in your life in the home you grew up in? And, and is it something you embraced early on and have always maintained that, that belief in faith? Yeah, you know, I, I was raised in a in a family that was uh, active in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints, and and so it was always part of our life and uh, our lives. And um, you know, my my family joined the church uh, in the 1850s, and and so they were you know fairly early members, and and uh, you know they they came to or actually they joined they joined in the 40s, came to Utah in the 50s. And uh, and and helped help build Utah, and so um, so yeah, it's always been a part of my life. I was you know very lucky to have great friends in in the church growing up, and you know we weren't perfect you know kids, but you know we we um, you know are, you know we were active members of the church, and the faith was important to us. And uh, ultimately, I went on to serve a mission, and and uh, and I, I would say that you know in in a way you know I'm I'm most influenced on the political side where I, I am now by our faith because in the sense that I'm, I'm passionate about the equal value of, of all of all of all of us on this earth and, and and the reason why I'm passionate about that is twofold and and one of the reasons is is religious it's that I, I believe that that we that there is a God our Heavenly Father who uh, who values each and every one of us equally. And, and I think that, that we need to approach life and politics and government with the same perspective, because who are we to deviate from, from that? If, if our Heavenly Father values us all equally, who are we to value each other uh, uh, unequally? And so, so I, I, that's something that motivates me quite a bit. Of course, you know, we, can't have, we can't be free unless we are, we are all equal under the law. Our freedom is dependent upon being considered equal under the law. And so, uh, but, so that's another piece of it for me. But you know, it starts with this firm belief and passion for the equal value of, of all of us here on earth. And, uh, and I, I fight for that politically, but my, but that comes from my experience in, in the faith. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. And I'm curious with, uh, the, you know, your path with the, the CIA and like, it sounds like he sort of uh, did that in tandem with, uh, with your college or your undergrad as well. 
what, what is that? Would you recommend that that path with with the CIA, CIA if, or any maybe department of, of government that uh, as as you're going to school, or what would you learn from that in, in hindsight that you would uh, recommend to others? Yeah, look, I, I would I would recommend. I mean, it was a phenomenal way to serve as a young person. I mean, it was uh, you know I was very grateful for it, especially at the time and certainly after 9-11, which you came after I, I graduated and all, but but it was um, it was a tremendous way to serve. They put a lot of trust in 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 me and in other student trainees to to do real substantive work. And you know, I, I remember you know having access to just incredibly highly classified information and you know, under getting a, a a real look at at you know what was going on in the world that wasn't showing up in the press, but you know serious uh, developments in the world that 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 uh, related to our national security. I mean, it was just an incredible experience to have, and to be able to marry my studies at Brigham Young University with that kind of practical experience was phenomenal. I'm still grateful for it. So yes, I would recommend it. Uh, of course, you have to you have to have an <coughs> So yes, I would recommend it. Of course, you have to have a uh, an interest in in that kind of work. Uh, but uh, but for those who are interested, it's it's an excellent way to go. And I think just more broadly, I mean, just having uh, an experience to serve and to do such substantive work while studying, I think, was highly valuable. I think there's there's mm. something to be learned from that. I mean, maybe maybe you know, and I think education is often, you know, often you know, we see it moving in this direction, depending in, depending on the, the, the subject matter and the industry. But I think that combination of work and study is a powerful one. So when I graduated from BYU, I wasn't worried about whether I was going to have a job or not. I knew what my job was. I was going mm-hmm. to the Central Intelligence Agency, and it was because they had already invested I don't know, hundreds of thousands of dollars in, in training me by that time. And, you know, they knew that you know, they had been able to test me and I knew that I fit in there and that I could, I, you know, I was happy there. So, you know, there's something to be learned there. I, I, I think, you know, that model, I think can be a powerful one. Yeah. And, um, would you say like getting into that type of training with the CIA, is it quite competitive? I mean, was it something that you weren't sure you were going to get into or? Yeah, it's very competitive. I mean, the, the agency receives you know millions of applications every year, or at least at the time they did. Mm-hmm. I, I hope that's still the case. And you know, I, I know lots of you know very intelligent, capable people who have applied and and somehow you know not been hired. And it's you know honestly, it's so competitive that it almost seems like a crapshoot at times because there are so many you know capable, talented people who, in the end, uh, you know, are not selected. But um, but I'm very lucky that I was. I worked very hard in order to be competitive there, earning good grades and staying out of trouble and, you know, learning languages and all of that. And, and it, it paid off. But, um, but yes, very, very competitive. I, I, I wish everyone who's in, inclined could have that experience because it was just a tremendous way to serve the country. Yeah. So obviously, uh, you know, there's uh, after seeing so many, you know, spy movies, James Bond and Mission Impossible, and, and you say that you were an undercover CIA agent. Like, is it? Did, did you feel like you were in a Bond movie a lot, or is it mainly just a lot of paperwork and you know uh, other busy work? It's not necessarily you know putting on masks and and uh, <laughs> beating up the bad guys. I don't know. I mean, how would you describe this being a CIA agent? 
Well, it's funny. I think when people ask me that question, I, you know, I do get that question occasionally. I think they expect me to say, yeah, actually, it's a lot of paperwork and it wasn't that cool. It, it, that's not the case. Yes, I did feel oh, cool. like I was in a Bond movie at times. And, 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 but, <laughs> but even better than that, in fact, I remember thinking as an agency officer that Hollywood just had not caught up to, to the reality of, of, of our work and, and that it was more interesting than even Hollywood mm. had, had imagined. Yes, there's paperwork, by the way, and I never enjoyed it. Uh, but but uh, more than that, it was you know a, a lot of very interesting work, and yes, it, it involved masks and disguises, and you know I was I was undercover, which meant I had a day job that I you know pretended to do, and then at, mostly at night I would go out and run uh, operations, you know, covert operations, mainly you know tracking down terrorist operatives, Al Qaeda operatives. And figuring out what their networks were, what their plans were, and then and then helping to take them off the battlefield, and and so I mean that was highly rewarding work. You know, there there wasn't a moment, actually, not even a moment ever, when I thought to myself, "Am I wasting my time here? Am I should I be doing something else?" That that thought never crossed my mind. I mean, I got up for work. And I was excited to get after it. And I knew that what I was doing was critical for the country and for the world, frankly. And, uh, and you know, I was very grateful for that opportunity. It was an incredible experience. Yeah. And when you're out on some of these operations, I imagine, I mean, your whole life is dedicated to that. You can't tell your superiors like, you know, I'm a Latter-day Saint and I'd like to maybe attend the local branch while I'm in town and worship. But I mean, that's that type of stuff is is not part of your life or is it? No, I mean it, it. just depends on the place. I mean, there, certainly there were play, there were times when I was in some far, far, far flung corner of the world where you know <laughs> yeah. there there was no no church of any kind. So that's true. But you know, I served in in a handful of war zones, and and sometimes there 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 you know were opportunities to to attend church, and I was grateful for for that. And you know, certainly in the larger wars where you have the deployment of the U.S. military, there are a lot of members in those places, and and you know, we would hold services. And um, but you know, in, in other places, you know, you're so far removed from everyone that you know there aren't any churches, you know, let alone our own. So it's uh, you know, it, it it certainly makes you grateful for what you have when you're home, and uh, you know, and and um, you know, more empathetic to the challenges that, that others face. Yeah. And so obviously not everybody listening will be an undercover CIA agent or have that intense of a, of a responsibility, but I'm curious, like how you stay grounded and connected spiritually. I mean, there's individuals who maybe suddenly have to travel a lot for their work, right. And they're maybe not as attached to their, the routines of their local ward and, and callings and, you know, family home evening and those types of things. So was there any routines or approaches spiritually that you made sure you kept on top of? Obviously there's the scripture study and the prayer, but any, anything else in that more specific? Yeah, I think it's, I think that obviously those basics are the most important thing in my view, but, um, but in addition to that, I mean, I, I, you know, in my time in, during my service, I mean, I felt like it was just that it was service. I was serving. I was trying to, um, you know, protect innocent people. I was uh, trying to protect the country that I believe in, that I think is critical for the cause of, of human freedom, which is is critical to to the just the deeper human cause. 
and you know and and uh and in our faith teaches teaches that and 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 so i i felt that the work i was doing was consistent with my system of beliefs and uh and that it played a role an important role in uh, in making the world a better place and so i, I think i had that advantage i mean I, perhaps if i was doing something else so if i had been an investment banker and you know, traveling constantly and away from family and away from, you know, uh, you know, you know, away on, on Sundays, for example, I, I may not feel the same way about it, but when, when your work is service, which mine was, you know, it, it, it certainly buoyed me. And in addition to those, you know, the basics that you mentioned, but, you know, having the work itself be service certainly helps. Yeah, I, I love that perspective. I think anybody can maybe reach for that in whatever professional uh, path they take. Is that make sure that there's some purpose here? That actually, you know, creating value for your community and and uh, and the world because uh, you know it's not just checking off the boxes and make sure that you're you know doing the typical um, you know Latter Day Saint habits, but that you're actually contributing. And and obviously, being in the CIA, that's maybe more obvious when you're literally saving lives. But uh, I think we could all maybe assess our approach uh, professionally to make sure that we're, we're creating positive value and making the world a better place, right? I think that's absolutely true. I mean, there are very few jobs out there that, that wouldn't allow you to, to serve uh, as you do them. And, and in fact, I think, I think it, taking that approach to most kinds of work uh, is, is wise on, on a lot of fronts. So I, I couldn't yeah. agree more. Yeah. So what were the expectations as far as working with the CIA? Is that something that some people make a lifelong career out of? Or was it always like, you know, I'm going to do this five to 10 years and then maybe look at grad school? Or what were the expectations there when you started? Well, there's no there's no time commitment uh, or commitment of, of time, you know, you in the sense that you don't have to you don't sign up for a dedicated period of, of service. And so some people are there for a year or two. Some people are there for 40. Uh, I, I think you know probably increasingly people are there for less than forty, um, but you know I, I was open to being there for a very very long time. I mean I, I loved the work there. I just I got to a point where, you know I, I worried that I would never get married and never be able to have a family if I continued to do that work. Mm, and yeah. I also had a sense that there were there were other things in life that I needed to do. And that although I loved, I loved serving with the, the CIA, I, I knew that ultimately I, I needed to move on and, and do other things. And, and that started with going back to school and I didn't know where life would lead, but I did have a strong sense that there were other things that, that I needed to do. And so, um, so ultimately I, you know, I served, I was an employee of the Central Intelligence Agency for over 11 years, but, um, you know, at the time I left, we had the terrorist threat pretty much under control. So I felt like, you know, I had contributed to, to that and I felt like that was fairly under control and it was a good time to, to move on if I felt like that's what I needed to do. And and so I did, but, but yeah, there, there are a lot of people who do their entire careers at the agency and it's a, it's a wonderful place to be. Um, yeah, it's a wonderful place to be. Awesome. And so as you uh, shifted into applying for uh, grad school, MBA school, uh, how, what's the story behind ending up at uh, Wharton? Well, I, you know, I, I wanted to go to, uh, I wanted to go to, to a, a, a program. I wanted to attend a program that was 
quantitatively rigorous. I'd been doing government work for about a decade, and that didn't require much quantitative analysis, and it bothered me. I felt like that was an intellectual and professional blind spot. And, and so, you know, I applied to a bunch of schools and, you know, had opportunities to, to attend several and, and ultimately decided that, that, uh, that I could be most challenged and that I would grow the most uh, at Wharton. Now, it's different. Everybody's got different needs, you know, when they consider which MBA program to attend. And there are a lot of good business schools in the country and, you know, it, it, it elsewhere. But for me, Wharton, uh, allowed me to address some some weaknesses that that I wanted to strengthen. Yeah, and so uh, going into Wharton, as far as what you expected and and learned there, I mean, with the hindsight you have now, if you were to go back to to yourself on day one, like what what advice comes to mind that maybe would would be helpful to know? Oh, I just think for anyone who's considering uh, earning an MBA. Uh, you, you know, go to the program that's going to uh, address your specific needs the best. And, um, and and there really are a lot of excellent programs in, in the country. I mean, I, I certainly, you know, was very grateful for my opportunity to, to attend Wharton and learned a lot there and benefit every day from having attended uh, school there. But, um, but, you know, there, you know, other programs I think, you know, might be better for, for other kinds of people with other kinds of goals. So I would just make sure, you know, I think in the, in the MBA application process, I remember hearing about fit a lot. And I remember thinking, oh my gosh, fit, you know, no, I want to go to the the, the highest ranked MBA program I can attend. And that's (laughs) that, you know, (laughs) but, but that was the wrong way of thinking about it. I mean, it worked out just fine for me, but but I think fit really is critical. I mean, we're, we're in a country that has, like I said, a, a number of really excellent MBA programs. And so find the one that's going to fit with you culturally and fit with your goals and, and help you address areas that you need to, to strengthen. Um, I think that's, that's the smart way. Yes, you want to attend a school that is going to provide the kind of education or, or employment opportunities uh, on the other side of of school or or entrepreneurial op- opportunities on the other side of of the program but but fit really is is critical i you know i know a lot of people who chose wrong on the fit front and and they you know they had you know not as positive of, of an experience as they could have had had they prioritized that a little bit more even though you know the 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 you know, so many people will, will try to convince you otherwise, you know, just go to the best ranked school you can go to. And, and that's all that matters. But that can be a recipe, I think, for disappointment, uh, or for lost opportunity, really, even more yeah. to the point. Yeah. And so with, uh, you know, finding that that fit, is that uh, like campus visits? Is it being familiar with just sort of the curriculum, the professors? I mean, is there something that, uh, that people could proactively do to make sure there's a good fit? Or? Yeah, I, th- I think you should visit campus and, and speak to as many uh, people as you can who are attending or who have attended the program. Uh, but I, I visited every campus I you know of, of the schools I applied to at least once. I really felt like I had a good idea for what they were all about. And you know, there there were schools that I was highly interested in, and I visited, and I I really didn't care for the culture and what I saw there. And so I you know I didn't apply or I didn't prioritize those applications quite as much. And so, 
there's, you know, and, and others where I was very impressed and I felt at home. And, you know, so it, it you, you just learn so much from those visits. And, and by the way, the schools like it when you visit too. It shows hmm. that you're making your decision because it's a two-way decision, right? They're deciding whether they're going to extend an offer to you and under what terms. And, and you're deciding whether you want to apply and attend if you receive an offer. And they want to know that you're taking you know, that you're making that decision thoughtfully and that, you know, when you apply, you actually are interested in potentially attending and visiting and then applying sends a pretty strong signal that you've, you've taken your decision uh, to pursue enrollment in that program seriously. Yeah, awesome. Well, you sent me an awesome list here of uh, six principles that have maybe uh, served you well in your uh, in your spiritual and professional life here. So let's go through these. The first one, and we've maybe touched on some of these as well. So if we've exhausted the the point, we can move on. But uh, the first one is fight the fight that matters. And you've already addressed this a little bit. Anything else to add there? Yeah, look, I, I just think that many times in life, we, we shy away from taking on the problem that is is the elephant in the room because it's complicated politically, I, I mean, in, in an office politics sense or in a you know bigger picture political sense, or it's just technically hard to solve. Um, but those are, those are issues in, in whatever realm you're working in that, that most need leadership. And so that's, that's one of my top leadership principles, fight the fight that matters. I've just learned that if you're willing to do that hard work, take on the problems that no one wants, no one else wants to take on because they're too hard, too complicated for whatever reason. Uh, again, that's where leadership is needed. And so there's an opportunity for you to provide leadership on that needed front. And so, so I, I've just learned that that is such a critical thing. I mean, I, I remember in the agency when 9-11 happened, you know, frankly, a lot of the senior officers didn't want to deploy out to war zones and go chase down terrorists and stop them from launching their next attack because they had joined the agency during the Cold War and they were used to, you know, enjoying, you know, the, you know, life in Paris while, you know, fighting, you know, uh, Soviets there and, and on the, you know, on the, uh, you know, in, in, in the nice, comfortable confines of Europe. And, um, and not that that's you know the only place obviously where the Cold War played out, but it was a definitely a different time in the agency's history. And so when nine eleven happened, a lot of people just didn't want to go to those places. But but young officers were willing to go, and I you know I was one of them. I was in my mid twenties, and I raised my hand and said, "I'll go." And so what happened because of that is that even as a very young officer, I I got you know, a tremendous amount of experience doing something that needed to be done. And, and that allowed me, you know, that created more opportunities for me as a professional. And I, that's, that's one small example, obviously related specifically to my experience at the agency, but, but that same principle really holds in whatever realm in which you're, you're working, fight the fight that matters. That's where you're going to be able to provide leadership and get leadership opportunities faster than you otherwise would. Yeah. Yeah. It's usually the work that nobody wants to do that uh, has the most opportunity. If you step forward, raise your hand and say, you know, I'll, I'll figure that out. And, uh, and it leads to bigger, bigger opportunities, right? I agree. Yeah. All right. Next principle is be service oriented. Yes, exactly. So that one, num- number two, be service oriented is very related to number one. Y- you know, the, the toughest problems usually uh, are, are difficult because 
there's no big, quick reward for someone working on them. So you, you think about the major challenges facing the world. Let's just speak, we could speak at that level, but the same applies at a company, for example. But but the major challenges facing the world, uh, you know, you, you might think about, you know, a poverty or, you know, massive refugee flows or just major challenges or, you know, challenges related to the environment. Uh, these these things are very difficult to solve. They, they don't look like they have any near term solutions. And, and, you know, there's, there, you know, oftentimes there, there aren't many people lining up to work on them because they, there's no immediate payoff for them personally. And so that's where service comes into play. Service is about, you know, giving of yourself, sacrificing for some greater good. You know, you may not get much out of it in terms of, you know, monetary or material reward anytime soon or ever, um, but it's work that needs to be done. And so that's that service. But in doing that, you're doing something, you're tackling something that no one else wanted to tackle or few others wanted to tackle. You therefore gain experience that other people don't have. You therefore can use that experience to help tackle other problems and to help lead in areas where there's insufficient leadership. And so, um, so I just think that that's, they're related. Those first two are related, but having a service service orientation is critical. The other thing is that your teams, any, any team, any organization that you, you might lead is going to be more effective. This is a different take on this point, but still, you know, part of why service is so important. If you're serving those who work for you, then you're helping them be stronger, more effective, more capable, uh, uh, more effectual, and and you uh, you you and your organization benefit from that. So you know that that idea we've all heard the phrase servant leader. I think it's super important. It 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 gives you more leadership opportunities if that's your approach, and it it also helps your teams and your organizations be more effective. Yeah. And then the next one, number three, is uh, listen with humility. Is there a, a story or a, a way that illustrates how, how you've learned that and gone about listening with humility? Well, I think it actually does come from my time at the Central Intelligence Agency, actually. Mm-hmm. I mean, our, our job was to collect intelligence, to collect information from from everywhere. And, and our ears were satellites and you know, uh, operatives on the ground and technical sensors all over the world. That's how we listened. Um, but in the leadership context, you, you also need to gather intelligence. You you can't you can't lead without understanding the landscape in which you're operating and understanding sort of your own performance and the perception of your performance within that landscape. And, and the only way you can really do it is by listening with humility. And so, you know, you, you, you know, listening with an intent to understand and uh, with humility in the sense that you're willing to set your own assumptions and prejudices aside so that you can really hear the other person and understand where they're coming from and, and learn about, you know, learn about the environment in which you're operating in, that you're, you're working in. It's just absolutely essential. If if you're unwilling to listen with humility, you're you're flying blind, and you're you're not going to be as effective anywhere near as effective as as you would be if you were willing to to listen with the intent of understanding. And I'll say is you know in the political realm, you know I spend most of my day, you know, listening frankly to people. And telling me about their challenges and what they think the country needs in order to get on track, 
And it's a tremendous asset to me, actually, to be able to listen to, to so many points of view. It, it, it gives me a true sense for what's going on in the country and where people are with our challenges. And I, I couldn't do my job in the political space without, without a willingness to listen humbly. So, and, but I, I think the same thing applies in business. Yeah. And I love framing it in that context of the, the CIA because, you know, they often say that, you know, you're trying to collect intelligence or information, but it's something that, that makes us smarter or more wise towards a, a situation. And, and seeing that in even a professional situation that I'm, I'm trying to listen in order to create, uh, gather information that'll make me smarter. Right. And so is there more to be said around like, what is intelligence? Like even in the CIA, CIA context, like, is there a way to identify that certain information is the information you, you want to, to gather? Or, I mean, because sometimes information just sound like random data, right? Does that make any sense? Right. Yeah, it does. I mean, I mean, one, of, uh, one challenge that, that you find in the agency, and I think you find it in, in enterprise as well, is sifting through a lot of data and, and sort of cutting through the noise to understand what's really important. In my view, the best way to do that is to is to have uh, uh, is to have a a broad awareness of existing data right existing information and you get mm. that through lots of listening right if you're if you if you've been ignoring the the data ignoring you know the the input for forever and then you decide today you're going to start listening at the beginning you're not going to really understand what's significant and what isn't, or it's going to be harder to understand. But if you've been listening, if you make a habit of it, it gets easier and easier as you continue to listen to understand what's new, what's different, what what makes sense inside the, the context that you understand to be true. You can't make those kinds of judgments if you just started listening today. So you have to be patient with it. But the more you listen, the better you become at at discerning what's important and and what isn't. Yeah, I, I love that. You know, taking a broad uh, perspective of things and trying to pick up on those patterns or seeing things from there, rather than I mean, it's probably easy to get so hyper focused on certain data or information, but to always keep that broad perspective as well. So, uh, next principle is maintain integrity to build trust. Yeah, so so this this is the thing. If you maintain your integrity, and and you know it's it's um, that that that's a constant. Uh, you know that requires constant effort. But if you maintain your integrity in even difficult situations, then you build trust. And when you build trust, it creates opportunity. And I've certainly seen that in the political realm. But again, it's certainly true in 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 business. I, I think you. You know, trust is is absolutely essential for deal making in commerce, but but certainly in in uh, you know political negotiations, it's it's so absolutely critical. You know, right now in Utah, for example, I am running against Mike Lee. Mike Lee has a lot of support among you know the the far right faction of of the Republican Party, um, but a majority of Utahns want to replace him. But they are Republicans, Democrats, and Independents. So they're in these different factions, uh, but you know they together form a majority that want to replace him. And so you know I'm now campaigning to unite those groups. 
And the only way to do it is, is if I have their trust. And, and I've worked very hard to, to earn it and work hard to maintain it. Um, but it creates in the political realm certainly opportunity that would not exist without trust. In business, it's a very similar thing. There are just too many um, variables, and even with the best due diligence in the world, uh, there there's a critical element of, of trust that has to be there for investments to take place, for partnerships to form. So trust is absolutely critical. The way you get to trust is through integrity. And if, if you have integrity and therefore earn the trust, then it's, you know, tremendous opportunities open up that just won't be there, you know, in business or politics if, if, you, didn't, if you didn't do those things, starting with having integrity. Yeah. I'd be interested to know what you've learned is, uh, you know, walking into that, these scenarios like you described with these different factions. Because like you said, the politics happens on a national level and a political political level, but also in a in a company, right? There's politics and different factions can can unite, you know, and, and also separate everybody and, and, and uh, whatnot within a company. And so if there's an, a professional walking into that situation where they're trying to build trust with these different factions, is there any... Uh, any any approaches you've learned that seem to be be more effective than others? Yeah, I, I think we go back to the earlier principle, which is you know listening, uh, you know listen with humility. I, I think yeah. you know the reason why you need to do that is that uh, when you listen with humility, you you understand more, and when you understand more between different factions, you all of a sudden understand where they have common ground. That you know, common ground often that they don't even realize they have or want to realize even that they have. Um, but but once you identify that common ground, you can you can really bring people together. And you know you um, you know there's a lot that goes into it politically and and you know I'm sure in commerce too. Although I've had more experience with this on the political front. But but listening is absolutely critical. Listening with humility, um, understanding, learning what the common ground is between different, even opposing factions, and then moving forward on that common ground. Um, it, it it you know I, I found that you know between former rivals in the political space, um, you know you, you don't necessarily have to convince anybody to change their opinions. In fact one of the biggest things for me these days in politics is that, you know, there's a tremendous amount of common ground between most Americans, even though you'd never imagine it given how divided and polarized the parties are. Um, yeah. But there is tremendous common ground on even the most divisive issues. It's just, nobody's willing to listen and, and, you know, among our leaders and willing to take the risk of saying, no, actually we agree on these things. But my point is just that there's a way to move forward on common ground even why, even while everyone else is just, uh, or even while they still maintain opposing positions, yeah. So that's 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 the important thing. You can still have disagreement while having common ground. The common ground is the way forward, and and that's certainly I, that I've seen the power of that in politics, and it likely has applications in office politics too. Yeah. Although I have yeah. I have not. I have not tried that particular, uh, you know, approach. I haven't had to in, in office politics in the past. <laughs> well, if you can master it in the political context, I think you'll you'll be an expert in every other context as well. So, um, and uh, the next principle here is uh, take calculated risk and move on quickly from failure. How have you done that? 
Yeah, well, I, th- I think actually that is another one that has its roots in my experience in the CIA. I remember when I was applying uh, early on, I, I saw an ad and I was already sort of in the application or in the, I guess, the recruitment process. Um, but I saw an ad in which they were they wanted to hire into the operations side of the agency people who were, quote, calculated risk takers. And, you know, I was too young to take many risks, uh, but, uh, or any risks, but I did kind of think of myself as, as, as having, you know, been wired that way. And, uh, and I learned in the agency, I mean, the agency asks you to do incredibly risky things. I mean, you know, uh, you know, you're serving often in conflict zones and hostile environments, even in war zones, and you're doing things that, you know, could easily get you killed. And, and so the, the agency teaches a lot of risk mitigation. So there's something that needs to happen. There's something that there, there's an opportunity to do it, but there are risks. So how do we mitigate risks? And so, you know, some of those things, you know, early in the, the effort in the war on terror after 9-11, you know, there, there weren't a lot of resources and systems and whatnot. Um, but, uh, you know, I was, so I was asked to go out alone at night and meet Al Qaeda, you know, operatives who we were, you know, trying to, we were, we had convinced to help us take out Al Qaeda. And so, so, you know, at any given time, those guys who were, you know, uh, wanted to defeat Al Qaeda like we did, you know, they could have been discovered and then, forced to ambush or, or, you know, kill me, you know, in those, those meetings, I was very vulnerable. And so, you know, they trained me to mitigate the risk of those encounters, uh, in such a way that significantly lowered the risks of, of my dying, even while out alone, tracking down, tracking down, uh, terrorists who wanted to do the country harm. So anyway, that's a bit of a tangent, but, um, but the point is that, uh, you know, you've got to take risks in order to make progress. And I think that's true on a personal level. It's true in business. It's certainly true in, in, you know, intelligence work and it's true in politics. You've got to take risks, but uh, of course you should do it in a calculated way so that you mitigate the chances of failure and certainly the chances of catastrophic failure. But when there are failures, uh, you know, recognize them as such, and uh, you know, learn quickly, and, ab- and abandon you know the, the failed approach, and move on to try something new, take another calculated risk. But that's a way of always moving forward and making progress, even even tremendous you know step increase level type of progress. Again, taking calculated, having a habit of taking calculated risks. Um, but you know, failing fast, as they say, and moving on quickly to try new things. So it's easy to think as uh, being a risk taker as like a, a caricature trait. Like, just some people are just naturally more uh, prone to risk than others. And so, if there was somebody who uh, saw it more as a skill set, because I think it is more of a skill set, and they wanted to improve that skill set and master mm-hmm. it, what uh, resources would you recommend, or how would they go about uh, improving their their calculated risk taking ability? Well, I, I would say that some people just are not risk takers, right? They don't see themselves as that way. They're more cautious. And, and I, to, to them, I would say uh, the answer is through the calculations that mitigate the downside of those risks. So mitigate the risk to, uh, to the extent that, uh, that you're, you're comfortable enough to take the risk is what it comes down to. And 
um, and start, you know, uh, right size the risks for your comfort level. I mean, that's, you know, that should be done anyway. And so, but, but I think, you know, if, if someone isn't a risk taker, but realizes, Hey, I need to take more risks in life, in my profession, and maybe even your, your, your personal life in order to make progress. Um, but I'm afraid because, you know, uh, I may fail or I may suffer whatever consequences. First of all, I would say, you know, the fear of, of failure is, um, you know, can, can, there's value in, in that in the sense that it can keep you honest and thoughtful and protect you from the worst outcomes. Um, but, you know, fear of an ego blow because of failure is, I don't think probably ever a good reason not to take a risk. And so that that's something that, that I, I think a lot of people, and even, you know, I, I have to as well is, you know, set that aside, recognize in yourself when you're not willing to take a risk, because if it doesn't work out, it's an ego blow. That's probably mm. not a good reason not to do something. But channel that fear of failure into a productive way. Make that the fire behind your the calculations that you do to mitigate risk. And then you you, you make whatever it is you're considering more manageable. And yeah. so um, so I, I think those two things are important. Yeah. I love that. You know, I I never consider the ego with that that risk taking thing, but it's right. You know, maybe people are less risky because of of, of a dominant ego that they don't want to that they want to protect, right? And so maybe check the ego first, and naturally you'll be better at calculating risk. So that's great. Yeah, yeah. And Evan, you saved the 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 last or the best principle for last here, which uh, I, I can't wait to learn more about, and that is uh, number six: get a dog. Please explain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you know, they say in politics that if you want a friend, get a dog. And so this is, that's, that's where this comes from to, to some degree. But it's more than that. It's what, what I mean by that is that, you know, you've got to have sometimes oftentimes leadership is lonely, right? You, you have to be out front, you, you're, you have to see things that maybe others aren't quite seen yet, make decisions that some that some people don't agree with, or that are you know, controversial to some or, or, you know, whatever. I mean, if people, you know, we've all led at different times in our lives and, and it can be lonely. And so what I mean by that, get a dog is, you know, have, have something outside of the space in which you're leading that is centering for you. I mean, it, it, it can be a variety of things, right? It, it, you know, it may be faith, you know, it may be family, it may be a hobby, it may be spending time. For me, one of the one of those things that, you know, the other things apply too, but one of those things is spending time in the great outdoors. Um, it's certainly spending time with family and, and you know, uh, you know, having a, a, a faith that, that um, you know, teaches, you know, you know, greater, you know, uh, you know, what, what truly matters in life, you know, that that certainly helps. Um, you know, getting a dog, you know, somebody who's going to be with you no matter what, uh, hopefully if it's a good dog, uh, you know, I say that tongue in cheek, but you know, that's, that's one of those things, but just make sure you have some centering, uh, thing in, in your life. Again, it, it can be faith, family, friends. In fact, it probably should be all of those things. Yeah. Um, or, you know, act, you know, uh, you know, hobbies, but, but I, I think it's important to have those things because, uh, if you have those things from which you derive 
you know, a sense of worth and, and value uh, for yourself, then, uh, then it's easier to, it's easier to lead, frankly, even when it's difficult. And that's certainly been the case for me. All of those things have, have helped me um, lead in areas where I, 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 I believe leadership was required, even when it's been very otherwise difficult to do so. So that's where that yeah. comes from. I love it. I love it. And then, you know, I think in any any professional life, there's going to be days where you feel like everybody hates you or against you, especially in politics, right? There's there's going to be those days, and to have to have a dog or something that that centers you, that where your approval rating is always at a hundred percent, I think is, is right. important to have that's uh, right. to, to ground yourself there. So that's awesome. Right. That's right. Well, and I don't mean to compare those things, by the way. That's <laughs> I'm not trying to. We, we get it. We get it. I'm not trying to put a put having a dog on par with the with the other things I mentioned, <laughs> but um, but it was just a, a tongue in cheek way to say that. It, yeah, but it. you know, in in politics, that's the way they say it. If you want a friend, get a dog, and there's a lot of truth to that. <laughs> Nice. I think that's why I think the vast majority of presidents have had dogs, right? I think that's important. So yeah, yeah, probably. <laughs> uh, well, Evan, this has been great. It's been fun to learn more about your background and and hear about your current journey and um, as you're running for office. Uh, and as as uh, you know, we always give people an opportunity to plug, you know, whatever their company is or their book or whatever. And so, obviously, your political campaign is front and center in your life. And so, if people want to follow you closer on on this journey and and learn more about uh, your platform and whatnot, where would you send them? Please come to evanmcmullen.com. That's the easiest way. And they can learn more about, you know, uh, about what we're, we're fighting for and, and join the effort. And we certainly welcome everyone to the cause, whether you're a Republican or a Democrat or an independent or a member of a third party. Uh, this is a campaign that's, you know, pushing back against the politics of division and, and extremism that we see. So, you know, so, uh, you know, so frequently uh, today in our country, and we're doing things differently. We're uniting people, and uh, not only is this the the kind of leadership that I think Utah needs and deserves, but it's it's also the kind of leadership that that the country needs, and uh, and it is uh, you know also the way we will win. And and I I'm you know I'm I'm I, I believe firmly that if we're united across party lines by our values and by a desire to see the country move forward in a more healthy way that, that we will prevail and we'll accomplish that. So thank you very much. Awesome. And the last question I have for you, Evan, is, is if you were in a room full of MBA students or graduates or Latter-day Saint professionals, what final advice uh, would you give them? I would say uh, approach life with an attitude of, of service you know, serve others, do what you can, no matter where you are to serve others. And, uh, and I would say, be true to yourself, those two things. And by the way, that was my, my grandmother was dying several years ago, and I asked her to give me advice. And, and she had lived almost 100 years and had seen a lot of life. And she didn't want to give me advice because the older generations of McMullins, you know, are pretty independent. They don't give advice or accept it. But I, I wanted her advice, and so I demanded that she give me advice, and that's what she said. She said, uh, be true to yourself and serve others. That was the, the entire net sum of, of her life, the advice she could give, and maybe not a surprise for people, but I think it carries a lot of weight, and I've never forgotten that, and I, I, I try to, to, to make that you know, a, a goal, those goals in my, in my life. 
Thank you for listening to the Latter-day Saint MBA podcast. Check out the show notes for more information about our guests and visit latterdaysaintmba.com to find details about the Latter-day Saint MBA Society.